Good morning. You guys doing okay? Everybody good? Good? All right. Someone over here whistled. They're doing well. Good. Good. Hey, um, if you're new here, you may not know this. If you've been coming here for a while, you probably you probably do. We make all those videos in-house, and I'll brag on uh, a couple of my guys, Billy, who, who drew that image, and then um, Zach and Spencer, who animated that, uh, all work here at the church, and that's pretty impressive. I think those guys do a pretty impressive job. It's neat. Okay, so we're starting a new book of the Bible, one that is dramatically different than the, than the one we just finished. Uh, we just finished the book of John, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, which I, I hope you guys enjoyed if you were here. Um, we're going we're gonna to go way back, way, way, way back into uh, the book of 1 Samuel, which is the ninth book of the Old Testament. So if you have a, a Bible, if you go to the very beginning and kind of work your way forward, we're in the ninth book of uh, the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is extremely different for, for a lot of reasons. It's extremely different in the fact that it is more historical. It's historical documents, and we can learn a lot from that. We'll talk about all that today. Uh, but the, but the, the kind of theological lessons, life lessons we learn from the Old Testament are most of the time very simple things. There's nothing overtly complicated about what we're going to talk about today. So sometimes in the New Testament, you can come across some doctrine and theology where you're like, ooh, you know, that kind of stretches the brain a little bit. You have to think about it a little bit, dig a little bit. Quite frankly, the Old Testament isn't really like that. And, and the fact that most of it is, is just quite simple. It's very easy to digest. It's very practical in its application. And I, I think sometimes we take that for granted and we forget these very simple things that if we forget these very simple fundamental truths, um, we complicate things, we mess things up, we make stupid decisions. So it's good to go back, revisit these historical accounts, see what God is teaching us through the lives of these people that lived literally thousands and thousands of years ago. And um, it's really, really healthy. So we're gonna be in 1 Samuel for a while, we'll see how it goes. And uh, I have no idea what we're gonna do after that, but uh, you know, hopefully in the middle of 1 Samuel, we'll figure it out, God will show us. So um, here's what we're gonna talk about today. In the spirit of, of things being very, very simple and, and, and not overtly complicated, but, but sometimes not easy to, to live out and apply, the thesis of where we're gonna hang out in, in 1 Samuel, and we'll do a little bit of history and background here in a second, is we're gonna talk about this, this principle, this idea, this, this understanding that everything we have, everything, uh, your children, your job, your home, your time, your future, your health, everything, everything that you think belongs to you um, doesn't actually belong to you. It belongs to God, and we are just, we are temporary stewards of that. Here's the thing. If we are followers of God, we inherit eternity. We inherit a new heaven, a new earth, right? Heaven's universe, and a new earth, and then a, a, a city, right? That's what we inherit for eternity. It's a biblical principle, though, that if we cannot be good stewards of small things, we have no business handling big things. So if we cannot handle the things of this life, right, in a way that honors God and gives it to God, um, how can we control or how can we be uh, inheritance? Uh, how can our inheritance be um, a new heavens, a new earth? How, how can we inherit eternity if we cannot steward this life well? So it is imperative that in this life we understand that everything is God's. And we live in a manner to where we give all things to God. So that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today, okay? So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in that. Um, not my hilarious anecdotes or anything like that. That's, that's spur of the moment. It just comes. Can't, can't script that. 
Uh, everything will be up on the screen. <laughs> everything will be up on the screen. Um, again, if you have a Bible, we're in the, the ninth book of the Old Testament. If you have a smartphone, just click on Sermon Notes on the Experience Community app, and, and you can cheat a little bit. You got all the scripture and notes right there in one place. And we should be in good shape, okay? So I'm gonna pray. Let's do a little bit of history. We'll do chapter one, which I, I hope you find interesting. I think it's very, very interesting. And um, kind of see what uh, the Lord's teaching us, okay? All right, let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room this morning. I thank you, God, that we can come into this place, Lord, and we have the freedom to, to worship and to break open your word and study it a little bit, God. I pray that as we get into a book that is, that is very, very different than the one we just covered, I pray that you bring up very simple and applicable truths, God, and that those truths will draw us closer to you. And I pray that as we study that, that you bless our church, God, that you bless us. And not just us, Lord, we pray that you bless every church in our city. Pray that you bless our other campuses and the other churches in those cities. And ultimately, God, our goal is that we honor you with our lives, that we trust you with everything, and, um, and that we draw closer to you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me tell you a little bit of history. And some of the history and some of the context of this book is, is very, very important. So when the Bible was written, the Bible is not written in chapter and verses. We put that in later to make it easier for us to find things because it's a very, very dense book. Imagine if we didn't have chapter and verses and I was like, hey, find this scripture. You'd be like, I'm gonna have to dig all the way through this. It'd, it'd be a little bit more complicated. So, so we added those things in to make it easier. Some of the other things that happened over time is we would take longer contributions to the Bible and we would split them. And one of those is First and Second Samuel. It was originally one book, but it was eventually split just to make it a little bit more digestible to, to the reader and the one who was studying it. So most people believe Samuel wrote the book of First Samuel, even though it doesn't explicitly say that. More than likely it was Samuel with the help of a couple of prophets, a guy named Nathan and a guy named Gad. Now, hopefully you'll find this interesting. I found this interesting. The, the story that we're gonna read, these historical events that we're gonna cover today and going out through 1 Samuel, happened about 3,000 years ago. So about 1100 BC, so quite a long time ago. Now, the, the document that we're going to read, this part of the Bible, wasn't completed until about 300 years after that, about 8 BC, okay? So it took about 300 years to document all this history, but it actually wasn't distributed and taught until about the sixth century BC. Why should we care? Because there's something important here. This book started to circulate and, and got taught in, in the Jewish synagogues and to the Jewish people because in the sixth century, the Babylonian empire came in, overtook the Jewish people and started exiling, especially their young men, back to Babylon. This is during the time of Daniel. And you can go back and read the book of Daniel if you wanna know what I'm talking about there. But the reason why the Jewish people started studying the book of Samuel, this is very important, is they wanted to go back in their history and look at a similar situation to what they were going through and figure out what not to do and what to do based on what the people who came before them did. This is important. It is extremely dangerous for a nation or a people to neglect or rewrite history. You're seeing this today, guys. See, what we do is if we take present day ways of doing things and present day values, and we try to insert them in history, we manipulate history to be something a little bit softer and a little bit more um, um, applicable to our daily lives. Now, 
But the problem with revising history, I think a guy named George Orwell wrote a book about this. The problem with revising things like that or the, reason, or, or, or the problem with neglecting history, like for instance, a lot of schools now don't wanna teach the Holocaust because it was so brutal. But the reason why we study the Holocaust and its brutality is so we do not do that again. And if we neglect history and if we revise history, we do not learn from the mistakes of history and we are doomed and destined to repeat those things. It's very foolish, right? They knew this 2,500 years ago, so they studied what happened centuries before. So if you're brave, let's say you're in this room, whether you're a new believer or, or maybe you're an, you're, you're an older believer and you're like, I am gonna read the entire Bible. That's, that's a great aspiration. Um, typically, I tell people to treat the Bible like Star Wars. You, you start with Matthew, and read the New Testament and then go backwards, right? <laughs> Star Wars, right? Episode four, five, six. Then you go back and watch one, two, three. That's the way it's supposed to be done. The, the Bible, I recommend, <laughs> I recommend people take a similar approach. Start with Matthew, read the New Testament, and then go check out the prequel, which is the Old Testament. But if you're in this room this morning and you're like, nope, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start at one cover, I'm gonna go all the way through, that's, that's awesome, that's, it's, Go for it. You'll start in the book of Genesis, and here is kind of the, the, how we get to 1 Samuel. You have the first five books of the Bible, that is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Genesis, obviously the beginning. You have the Exodus, which is the people of God exiting Egypt on their way to the promised land. On the way to the promised land, we receive the fundamental teachings of God to humanity, that is the 10 commandments. Okay? The Ten Commandments are kind of the bedrock of what is right and wrong and how we are to relate to God and others, the Ten Commandments. We get that in the first five books of the Bible. Okay? After the first five books of the Bible, you have the book of Joshua. Joshua is kind of the protege of Moses. He takes the people of God into the promised land. A lot of war, a lot of bloodshed in the book of Joshua. You go into the book of Judges, which is absolute chaos, not the writing, but the history of the judges was absolute chaos. And you can go back and read a little bit about that. What was happening during this time is you had the people of God, you had Israel, but there was no central government. There was no one leader. You had a bunch of provinces and they were autonomous. So imagine like the United States, but all 50 states were autonomous. They had complete autonomy and could do whatever they wanted to. You could see how that could get a, a little confusing. And so from the time of the judges, we have the short book of Ruth, which is absolutely gorgeous. We've covered that before. And then you get into 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel is the rise of the monarchy. You have the rise of kings, right? Saul and then to David. Now, what was going on when 1 Samuel was beginning, what was going on in the, in the, in the context of this book, is the people were not unified. They didn't have a central government. They didn't have a central leader like all the countries around them and they felt threatened by all the countries around them. So what they said is, we are worried about our enemies, so we need, get this, imagine if you will, a people who said we need a government and one central individual to protect us instead of God. Imagine, if you will, that a people would think such crazy thoughts. The other thing was, is that the people had become, uh, they had fallen into apostasy. They were not following, they were not trusting God. So the book of Judges shows us 
that the Jews had become idolatrous. They had started believing other religious beliefs besides the true religious beliefs they were supposed to. They started worshiping materialism and foreign gods and they become lustful and they started following their own passions. And look at what Judges 21 says. Everyone did what seemed right to them. You think Americans created moral relativism. You think we created the idea of my truth and your truth. That junk has been going on for at least 3,000 years. And what it does is it absolutely destroys people groups. We're doing it right now in the United States, if you don't catch what I'm laying down here, right? Is that we have this, this, this kind of uh, um, mantra in the United States, well, you live your truth and I'll live my truth. Everyone did what seemed right to them as an individual and, and we got chaos, so when they should have been in prayer, when they should have been obedient to God, the people wanted a quick fix. Let's elect someone to get in there and fix all of our problems and protect us. All right. And so 1 Samuel does not introduce us to new theology. We learn nothing new about God in 1 Samuel. And you're probably like, then why are we doing 1 Samuel? Well, what 1 Samuel does is takes everything that Moses teaches us, especially the principles of the Ten Commandments from the first five books of the Bible, and 1 Samuel kind of, kind of reinforces those or lifts up situations that shows us why following the principles of God are so important. Of course, we will talk about very broad things like obedience, the promises of God, living in the presence of God, a relationship with God, and, and of course, the consequences of sin. We're gonna see a little bit of that just in chapter one, that when we do sinful things, there are always ramifications for that. We will also see the power of leadership. We will see that when a leader is humble, this is so important, that when a leader is humble and puts their trust in God and lets God lead them, the people that they lead flourish. They prosper. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about they prosper as humans when they have a humble, God-fearing leader. On the flip side of that, if a leader is not humble, if they are arrogant and self-serving, the people they lead suffers and chaos ensues. Now, you could be in this room this morning and be like, whoo, thank God I'm not a high-level leader. This isn't just for high-level leadership. If you're a mom or dad in this room, the same thing applies to you. If you are a manager at your job or a boss or a business owner or whatever the case may be, when we are humble and God-fearing, we lead people well. When we're arrogant and self-serving, we don't. And that goes for any level of leadership, right? So let's do chapter one. I'm gonna read a little bit. I'll do my best uh, to break it down. Again, for all you Hebrew scholars in here, I phonetically wrote out some names. I'm gonna do my best to say them correctly. If I don't, um, we'll make it. We'll still be okay, all right? Okay. There was a, a man from Romathaim, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Panina and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion 
to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. And year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying, her husband would ask. Why don't you eat? Why are you so troubled? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? And you want to say, why, Elkanah, are you so clueless? But we'll get to that here in a second. So when you study the Old Testament, like I said, there are many small details that when you read them, you may go, why do I need to know these small details? Like that Elkanah was from south central Israel, an area called Ephraim. He was from the tribe of Levi, which was the people who would work in the temple. Kind of like how we have employees here at the church that not just you know, get up here and teach, but they set up chairs, they, they, they vacuum, they, they prepare lessons, they do all these different things. They do the work of the church. That's kind of what Elkanah and his family lineage, the Levites, would do. So these little, little minor details that are in there, though they may seem insignificant, things like lineage, things like names, when you read the Old Testament, what people's names mean usually are very prophetic. They either tell what, what has happened or what is going to happen, people's names. And so these little details start to connect over time. And there's lots of kind of nuggets, if you will, in the Old Testament that reveal some pretty interesting things. So Elkanah had two wives. Uh-oh, we already see a problem here. One named Hannah, one named Penina. Now, here's the thing. Polygamy, multiple wives, is nowhere condoned in the Bible. Nowhere. People will mistakenly say, well, all these people in the Old Testament had multiple wives. See, the Bible's all about polygamy. No, no, no. In Genesis 2.24, Moses writes that God says, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. Singular. The definition of marriage, according to God, is one man, one woman exclusively for life. All these people that committed polygamy in the Old Testament, they were breaking the command of God. And we see the ramifications of that through the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, you're like, whoa, what a web we weave, right? When we're not doing what the Lord wants us to do. So why did all these men do this? Because they were just, you know, sex-craved lunatics? No, that's not why they did it. The reason why many of the men in the Old Testament would have second, third, sometimes fourth wives is if they married a woman and she was infertile, they would get scared for their future. See, in the Old Testament, they didn't have 401ks, uh, 401k plans. They didn't have social security. They didn't have insurance. They, they didn't have those kinds of things. They didn't have Medicare or things like that. They had no backup plan. So you had to have a child, preferably a son, to make sure that your estate was taken care of, to make sure that your bloodline would continue on, to make sure that if something happened to you, someone was there to take care of your wife and your family. So if your first wife couldn't have any children, out of almost necessity, they would take matters into their own hand and they'd marry a second woman in the hopes that she could have a child. So if you see what's going on here, when we take things into our own hand, when, when, we're, when we're so concerned about our future, our bloodline, our money, our, 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 our um, security, when we're overly concerned about that, and instead of trusting God, we take things into our own hand, we, we cause chaos. So polygamy, like all sexual sin, 
is, is a result of selfishness. It's a result of not trusting God. And again, the Bible records the ramifications of living outside of God's uh, decision, one man, one woman for life. And Hannah is not the first person in the Bible that we read about that had a situation like this. There was Sarah, there was Rachel, Samson's, uh, Samson's mom, eventually in the New Testament, Elizabeth and Luke. And from all of these stories of women that have to, to, to go through these times of infertility where they have to trust God for whatever the result may be, we see that we have to run to him for answers. We have to run to God for strength. In these times of confusion and desperation, we have to go to him because we, we, we have to get to a place to where we understand that God loves us. And regardless of what he does in our life, he does it for our benefit. And these women did this, and we'll see Hannah is about to do this as well later on in this chapter. So what would happen is this. Every year, Elkanah, his two wives, and his one wife's kids, Panina's kids, would all travel northeast to an area called Shiloh. Elkanah would get there, he would work because he was a Levite. He would work in the temple. He would prepare things for all the people coming to worship. They did this at least annually. Some people think they did it three times a year and they would go worship at the temple. And so they would get there and you can imagine how hard this must've been for Hannah. So she travels, they get to the temple. She sees her husband working in the temple. She sees Eli, the priest of the temple, working with his two sons. And so Hannah sits there and she goes, I, I can't contribute to this. I wish I could give him a son that could, that could take over his line of work, that could, could join him in working for the Lord. So, so she started to get depressed as she would go to these things every single year. And it was just a reminder that she was infertile. Not only that, this situation, okay, so Elkanah made a couple of mistakes. One, he married two women. That's nothing against women. That's against men can't hardly handle one. So he, hand, he marries two, and then he openly showed favoritism to one of them. Mistake number two. So in the Old Testament, when, when they would go make sacrifices at the temple, there was very strict procedures by which you had to make a sacrifice. Burn certain parts. You would discard certain parts. You would eat certain parts. All these different things would happen. And so when they would go, the part of the sacrifice that they would eat, <laughs> this is not smart, um, Elkanah would give a little bit to Panina and her kids. Here you go. Here's enough for you guys to eat. And then he would take double that and right in front of everyone, give that to Hannah. And of course, this did everything you would expect it to do. It caused jealousy, caused rivalry. It was division. It caused resentment. Because what happens is this. Listen, I hope you don't miss this very subtle thing that it teaches us here. Jesus talks about in the gospel of Matthew that a house divided cannot stand. It's Matthew chapter 12. What that means is that doesn't mean like our literal home. That means us. When we are divided, when our allegiances are divided, we create chaos because Jesus said, no, no person can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other or love this one and hate that one. So you can't serve both God and blank. So what we see right here with this man that has two wives and he has a divided allegiance is it causes strife, it causes division. In the same way, we are to be spiritually married to God. And when we have other spiritual allegiances, when we say we love God, but we follow the principles of the world, we have a divided allegiance. And it causes pain, it causes strife, 
and it will separate us if we're not careful, right, from our, our professed husband, God. So Panina would treat Hannah awful, would taunt her, it says several times, and it would drive Hannah to, to weep, cry uncontrollably, and to not eat. Now, if you're reading that, to me, that looks like signs of anxiety and depression. And these are real things. If I were to, I'm not going to do that, but if I were to ask you guys in here how many of you have had, had serious moments of kind of overwhelming anxiety, I, I, I would say most of you, if you've lived any length of life, you'd say, yes, I've been anxious to the point to where it, maybe my chest hurt or it was unnerving. If I were to ask the majority of you, have you ever had sadness over any long period of time? Depression. I, I, I bet the majority of you in this room would probably say, yes, I've been through seasons of that. So these things are real. And they're typically caused by some kind of trauma in our life. Now, people get really sensitive when we talk about this kind of stuff, but I've reached a point in my life where I, I just don't care as much. So here's the thing. Um, I believe in counsel. I go to a counselor once a month. I got nothing wrong with good Christian counseling. Actually, I think it's pretty healthy. Christian counseling is a, is a great thing. Nothing wrong with that. In severe cases, maybe even medication needs to be a part of that. I think we need to be cautious with that, but there are times when medication needs to be a part of that mix. But here's what we do, even as professing Christians. When we suffer with depression or when we suffer with anxiety, what we do is we run to a doctor, we run to WebMD, we run to a therapist, we run to a pill, we run to a drink, we run to a joint, we run to porn, we run to food, we run to, we run to, run to absolutely everything. And when those things don't fix the problem, then we go, okay, I'll try God. I'll try God now. Where in, 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 in a biblical way of speaking about it, the Bible says, be anxious in nothing, but in all things pray. Which means our first reaction when we feel sadness, when we feel anxiety, is we need to take that to the Lord. Now listen, the Lord may point you to a good counselor. The Lord may point you to a good doctor, but those things are supplements. Ultimately, we need to bring those concerns to God first. Is that okay? No one's deeply offended by that? Okay. So what Hannah needed was some empathy and some understanding. And Elkanah seems to have missed the mark on this. Why are you crying? Why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? Like, you know why, right? You got two wives, bro. That's why. Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Well, that's kind of an insensitive thing to say. And so what we find out there is, listen, I don't think he's an awful human, but what we learn is even the people that love us the most in this life cannot save us. They cannot fix us. We have to ultimately run to God for salvation and for, and, and for restoration. I love my wife more than any human that has ever existed, and she is darn near perfect. I have a darn near perfect wife, but my wife cannot ultimately save me. She cannot fix me. You have to have, we have to have a relationship with God, and we will see that with Hannah right here. Hannah makes all the right moves in this chapter. Let's keep reading. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. 
While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. Kind of seems like jumping to conclusions pretty fast there, but. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish, look at this, and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. It's interesting. So though Panina's uh, um, kind of vitriolic uh, attacks on Hannah, though that should have pushed Hannah away, listen, though the abuse of another person should have pushed Hannah further from God, instead it pushed her closer to God. So let me tell you something about life, and I know the majority of you know this. Eventually, someone is going to hurt you. It's going to happen. It may even be a family member. It may be someone that professes to be your friend. You are going to have people who condescend you. You're going to have people who take advantage of you. God forbid you may even have people that physically or emotionally abuse you. These things are going to happen. The question is not, will we suffer at the hands of other people in this life? You absolutely will. The question is, to whom will we run in those times? Will we bring that to God? Do we trust in the wisdom of the word of God? Do we trust in the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit that should be in us? Do we trust in him? Hannah did, and she brings this to God. So Hannah recognized that if her prayer was going to be answered, if life was going to be given to her, literal, right, a baby, if life was going to be given her, only one can give life. Only one could give her the things that she desired. So she went to the giver of life because he's the only source that can give her what she, what she wanted. And so because he is God, because he is the only source of life, she approached him with respect, not entitlement. She didn't go, hey, God, don't you owe me? God, can you do this for me? I got things to do, God. God, no, no, no. She went with humility. She went with the proper attitude. And she asked something that was humble. Notice she referred to herself as a servant. She says, your servant is talking to you, which means she was already obedient. To, this is so important. She was already obedient to God before she started asking things from God. Hello, right? How many times do we go, God, I need this, this, and this. And God's like, whoa, I need you to actually live the way I want you to live before we get to all those things. We need to address sin. We need to address, you know, your obedience. We need to address those things. So we need to approach God with, with some wisdom. We need to approach God seeking his will and not ours. And we need to be willing, because she said, if you do give me a son, I will give him right back to you. So we also need to be willing, whatever blessings God gives us in this life, we need to be willing to give those things right back. Right back. If I get the promotion, God, I will use it for your glory. If, if, if I have children, God, I will raise them for your glory. If you give me this, you know, if you give me this relationship that I'm seeking, God, we will use our relationship to your glory. That we have to be willing to give all those things back to him. So one of the things that she says 
And she says, I will give him back to you and his hair will never be cut, right? So is Hannah just like a hippie or what's going on here? What does this mean? No, this was a Nazarite vow. And I just learned this recently. I didn't know this uh, until last week. Both men and women could take Nazarite vows. Both of them could do this. And what this was, is people could choose or you could choose for your child to put them into a, to, to, to a scenario to where they live a very, very strict life of following God. Um, Nazarite vows means that you would never cut your hair, you would never cut your beard if you were a man. Um, they couldn't eat certain foods, they couldn't drink any alcohol, they had to live with certain diets, dress a certain way, they worked in the temple their entire life. This was a pretty serious pledge. And so this was her saying, God, if you give me a boy, I will, I will give him to your service. I will, I will entrust him back to you. Now here, th this is important. All of us as parents in this room, we should pledge our children to the Lord. Now there's nothing wrong with, with child dedication services. We, we've done that before in the past. Did one a couple of, uh, about a month or two ago uh, for a young couple that comes here and we did a, a quick kind of dedication of the child. But we make it clear in those things, listen, just because you're a parent and you walk up with a baby and you're like, here, I dedicate this to God. And you're like, done, got nothing else to do. Child's locked in, they, they can live however they want. I can live however I want. We did a service and dedicated it to God. That's not the way it works. Notice she dedicated this baby to God, but that baby was going to grow up and live in the principles and work of the Lord. So when we have a child, it's not just like, hey, God, I dedicate this to you. All right, I'm gonna go watch some YouTube. That's not the way it works. We raise those children in the teachings and principles of Jesus until they leave our home. That's what dedicating our children and our family to God is. And we're all supposed to be doing that. So as Hannah goes, and she goes by the temple and she's praying. I put aloud there. Obviously she's speaking, but not loud enough for anyone to hear. So she's kind of like praying under her breath, but she's very emotional and she's out there praying and, and I don't know why Eli was out there, just as he was hanging out by the front door, maybe sipping a cup of coffee or something. And he looks over and he sees Hannah and he's, man, this woman's really emotional and you can see her lips moving, but I can't hear her. So he jumps to this conclusion, woman must be drunk, right? Which, which seems like a pretty big leap. But you know what this sounds like to me or what it convicted me of? Oftentimes, you and I, if you're a Christian in here, we can look at people who are in dire situations and we can make very quick judgments in our mind. We can create narratives about people, can't we? So if we see someone that's broken, we see someone that's going through something, we see someone who's emotional, even if they're living in a way that we know is wrong, we jump to conclusions and go, oh, they're in that situation because they're just a drunk. Oh, they're in that situation just because they're lazy. They're in that situation because they've made all these poor decisions and we, we instantly jump to conclusions when maybe it would be a little bit more advantageous if we would get to know said individual, hear the backstory, and even if they're not doing everything right, at least then we have some empathy because we understand how they got there. So instead of Eli walking up and being like, hey, why are you so upset? He just goes, well, something must be wrong with her. And he goes and approaches her and he's very insensitive. And we need to be careful that we don't become people who just look at the outside and instantly judge what's going on in the inside. Right? That's good. And so this is another person, this is a man of God that kind of fails Hannah a little bit. Now here is something really, really good. So this man of God, 
walks up to Hannah and says, what, are you drunk or something, right? You've been drinking a lot of beer and wine? And at that point, Hannah could have pulled out her phone and tweeted something really mean about this guy. At that point, she could have rebutted back and said something mean. The Bible says not to return evil for evil, but she could have done that in that moment. She could have gotten deeply offended, but she didn't get deeply offended. We get too offended, don't we? And Christians are like, yes, look at these, look at these woke cancel culture people out there. Man, Christians know how to do some canceling too, don't we? A secular company puts out something that we disagree with and we're like, well, guess I'm never drinking water again. This water company did this thing. <laughs> guess I'm never shopping for clothes anymore. Guess I'm not gonna do this, this, or this, or this, right? We, we cancel pretty good in Christianity. We do that pretty well. And so, so we get offended too easily. Listen, if we're living righteously, guys, we, have, we, we don't need to get offended. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, like, like the only thing that, I heard a pastor say this one time, the only thing that should offend us is actually the word of God that has the right to correct us and tell us that we're wrong. That's the, that's the only thing, right? But, but Hannah didn't get offended. Someone walked up and, and, and falsely accused her of doing something sinful. And instead of being hostile, instead of being offended, she's humble and she just says, oh, don't think of me as wicked, I'm just here praying. And you know what this does? Instead of throwing gasoline on a situation, it just de-escalated it. And not only does God bless Hannah for, for her humility, you know what it did? It also made Eli humble too. And you can imagine he was probably like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I, I misjudged you. And then he affirms her prayer. Listen, when we act in humility and when we act in clarity, it de-escalates. We talked about this when we were doing the Gospel of John. We are to be people who cultivate peace, not stir up and throw, throw, throw gasoline on the fire. That's not how we're supposed to act. We're to bring it down. We're to be people of peace. And so look what happened, guys. Look what happened. This was a woman who was anxious. This was a woman who was depressed. This is a woman who had been abused. You guys hear me this morning. Anxious, depressed, abused. She went to the Lord with these things. And what happened? She got her appetite back. She didn't look despondent, the Bible says. She visibly looked like something had changed. Proverbs 13, 12 says, in the absence of hope, the heart grows sick. When we have no hope, it's no wonder that we slide into despair. When we worry about the future, it's no wonder. Man, guys, listen, if we're just being real here this morning, you watch enough news. I think I've told you guys this before. Every Friday, I get up early before everyone else and I sit down with a cup of tea because I'm just refined like that. And I watch all the news headlines, mostly world news. I watch all the world news Headlines And man, if you watch enough five-minute clips from you know, BBC and places like that, you can sit back with your cup of tea and be like, we're screwed, right? How are we? This is bad. But if I put my hope in the one that holds the future, I don't slip into that despair. I don't slip into that anxiety. I don't slip into that depression because I know how this book ends. And so I put my trust in the one that holds the future, right? And that's what we have to do. That's what Hannah did. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel 
because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and he will stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. Look at this. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him uh, with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar full of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, talking to Eli, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord, God. I prayed for this boy, since the Lord gave me what I asked for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. Okay. So the next morning, um, they worship at Shiloh one more time. Elkanah and Hannah return home, and it says they were intimate, and the Lord remembered her. What I think this means is it's not just they, I'm not trying to be crass, not just they went home, had sex one time, and then, and then the rest of the story unfolds. It, it appears like, because it says after some time she conceived, it appears like their marriage was probably strengthening, their relationship. So they were probably intimate many, many times, and eventually she conceived, had a boy, and was gonna name him Samuel, which means request of God or heard by God. See, situation named after the situation. It can also be prophetic in the fact that um, Samuel would also hear from God and God would hear him. He would become a prophet. So we see there's a little bit of prophetic uh, sense in his name as well. So the year following Samuel's birth, the, the, the family goes back to Shiloh. They're on their way back to Shiloh. They're packing up. They're getting ready to, 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 to get in the Volvo and they're gonna go back to Shiloh. That was a bad joke, right? I just assumed that, that El Elkanah drove a Volvo. They get, they get in and they're gonna head back to Shiloh. And so Hannah says, I'm not gonna take Samuel. He's not gonna go yet. I'm still, I'm still breastfeeding and it's not until I wean him that I will take him to the temple. So, okay, here's the thing. Back then, women would breastfeed a lot longer than, than most women would breastfeed now for several practical reasons. Um, women didn't work back then like a lot of women work now. So a lot of times women will get their maternity leave and then they gotta go back to work. So they, they pump or they put the child on formula, whatever the case may be. They can only breastfeed for a certain amount of time. Um, again, we also have formula and things like that that, that babies can be put on and, and be fine and healthy. So women don't breastfeed as long as they used to. That's probably not why uh, Hannah didn't go to Shiloh. What she was probably doing was stalling. She probably could have weaned Samuel off a lot earlier, but, but she knew when she was done breastfeeding her child, she essentially loses her child. Now, that doesn't mean she'll never see him again. She could go visit, but for the majority of the year, she would not see her son. And look at what Elkanah says. Elkanah says, because he does seem like a, a, a loving man, he says, okay, you, you do what's best, but then he says, may the Lord confirm your word. And that was his subtle way of saying, Hannah, I know this is tough, but you made God a promise and you have to fulfill your vow to God. 
Uh, we do this too, guys. Do you, do you know when, when we become Christians, we are essentially making a vow? When we, when we become Christians, we, we are essentially marrying, if you will, spiritually God. And when we do that, we are saying, I will live for you. So let me ruin the Old Testament for you. What the Old Testament is, is basically this. It's the people of God getting into a situation because they made stupid choices and sinful choices. They, they get desperate. They cry out to God, help us, save us, get us out of this. God helps them, saves them, gets them out of it. And then times get good again and the people grow complacent and they start making the same mistakes all over again. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. And over and over and over and over again, it goes. And we look at that and we go, man, those people are so foolish, right? You just get miraculously delivered from Egypt and then you start worshiping a, a gold calf in the middle of the desert. Don't you remember that God just split the Red Sea for you? And we, we kind of poke fun at these people. How many times in our lives, guys, I can't tell you how many hundreds of people have come into this church over the years and their marriage has fallen apart and a man that never came to church with his wife comes in and says, oh, Corey, my wife left me. My family is falling apart. I need God. I need help. I need you. Like, we got to get together. We got to fix this. And I was like, all right, let's work on this. They start coming to church. They get into a men's group. Things are going good. Their wife starts coming. Things are looking great. Things settle down. And then I stop seeing that couple every week. I see them every other week. And then I stop seeing the couple. And then I see that the same couple just got divorced on Facebook. I see that, that they've separated. Because what happens is complacency is an enemy. Apathy is an enemy. And if we're not careful, we take the blessings and provision of God for granted. And Hannah thankfully made the right decision, but she had her blessing, didn't she? I'm comfortable. I got this child. I'm not going to give it up. I'm not going to. Okay, so I said that I was going to do that, but God will understand, right? It's just a little sin. Just a little rebellion. But Hannah understood that she had made a vow. She was a woman of her word, a good woman, it seems like. And though it must have been difficult when, when Samuel was about three years old, she took her son to Shiloh. She took a sacrifice, a bull. Um, she took a jar of wine. And she went to, to spiritually give her son over, but also literally. If you're a mom in here, imagine giving your three-year-old away. And that's what she did. And what we learn at the end of chapter one is nothing truly belongs to us. Nothing is truly ours. It's all God's. Our marriage is God. Our kids are God's. Our finances are God's. Our sacrifices for God, it's all belongs to him. We are just temporary stewards of that. And we have to place it all in his hands. We have to give it back to him. Okay. So Elkanah relied on worldly solutions to fix his problems. And that only caused pain. Do you know what we tend to do? And listen, I'm not knocking on any of you because I've done it too, just like Elkanah. We get desperate. We worried about what people think of us. We worry about our future. We worry about provision. We worry about these things. And instead of taking those things to God, we take it into our own hands and we make a mess. When we have a divided heart, we invite chaos into our life. And we invite chaos into the life of those around us. We invite hardship in. We invite hurt in when we try to serve two masters, when we try to serve ourselves and God 
simultaneously. We also learn in this chapter that ultimately we cannot be fixed by another person. Has my counselor done a lot for me? Absolutely. But you know what my counselor does for me? My counselor redirects me back to God. When, when, when I get off track, I have a third party look at me and say, Corey, you gotta do this. And this will lead you back to where you need to be with God. Think about it this way. And God works through him and he directs me back to God. We can have other people in our life that help us, that supplement our walk, but they cannot be the focus of our walk. They cannot be our saviors. They cannot be the ones to change us and fix us. That, that, that can't happen. We need a greater source. Even the best human in your life will eventually let you down. I promise. I promise. So we have to run to the correct source. Again, here's where we get sensitive. People get their feelings hurt when we say stuff like this. But in times of sadness, in times of depression, in times of confusion, in times of, of anxiety, again, nothing wrong with a good counselor. Nothing wrong with things like exercise. Do you know if you study therapists and counselors, do you know virtually most therapists and most counselors virtually never see avid runners? Because when people avidly run, there's an antidepressant that the body naturally makes. And so most avid runners never have to go to therapy. Isn't that weird? So things like going out and exercising, that, that does matter. Being out in the sun matters, you know? Like in the summer, I'm like, yeah, life. In the winter, I'm like, nah, life. You know, like it's different when the sun starts setting at four o'clock. So the sun matters. There are even times when things like medication matter. But listen, when we feel the pressures of life, when there is trauma, when there is anxiety, when there is fear, when there is depression, God has to be the first thing we run to. God has to be the first thing we go to. And God may work through some of these other things, but ultimately we have to trust him. We have to give it to him. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things pray, the Bible says. We have to go to him. But we also have to be honest, where do we run when we are anxious? Do we run to food? Do we run to pornography? Pornography, people run to pornography when they're anxious. Do you know why a lot of people watch pornography? Because it's controllable. I can control what I see, I can control what I feel, I can control these, these, these feelings inside me. And, and so a lot of people run to pornography. I tell people that sometimes who struggle with that. It's not because people are always sex crazed lunatics, it's because life is out of control and this is something I can control. So sometimes we run to, to that. Sometimes we run to, to all kinds of things, drinking or escapism. Some people run to Netflix and veg out for 10 hours. Where do we run in times of trouble? Do we trust and believe that God has the power to help? Do we really? I believe God is all powerful. We should live like that then. We should live a little bit more dependent on that. And though it is hard, to trust God with all things at times. Though it is hard to, to give God, listen, we're talking real in here this morning. The, though it is hard for us to trust God with our children, Lord, I'm, I'm letting them out in this world. I've done the best I could. I, I, God, they're yours. Protect them, keep them safe. That's hard. To trust God with where we live, to trust God. I don't know if anyone else felt like this the last couple of years. You look at your 401k and you're like, I am never gonna retire, right? And sometimes it's hard to trust God with your future. But we have to reach a place to where we understand that anything good in our life is, is from him. 
The Bible says this, all good and perfect gifts come from God. Well, but Corey, I earned that. I earned that paycheck. Well, God made your legs. Well, I thought of that idea. God made your mind. Well, look how beautiful my children are. That was all God. He's the creator of life. We can go on and on and on. It all goes back to him. So, so if we're going to reach a place to where we trust him with everything, our future, our job, our house, our kids, our marriage, our friendships, everything, we have to understand fundamentally in our mind that God wants what's best for us. You know what? That's all fine and good when we get what we ask for. But do we still believe that God has a better plan for us when we don't get what we ask for? Maybe we pray for that promotion and we don't get that promotion, but maybe that's because God has something better for you. Or maybe God knew that if you took that job, you would meet some young man there that would, that would possibly pull you away from your relationship with your husband and you don't need that temptation. God sees it all. And God knows what's best for us. And you may be in this room and go, how can I trust him? God gave his only son. He sacrificed his only son for us. That is evidence, that is proof that we can trust him with everything. And we have to reach a place to where however things shake down, we know that we know that we know in our heart and in our mind that however things shake down, ultimately it's for his glory and ultimately it's for my benefit. Do we live in that truth? We have to live in that truth. Is it easy to live in that truth all the time? No. But we have to get to a place to where we live daily in that truth. He loves me, and however things shake down in America, however things shake down on the world level, however things shake down in your home, if we are running to God and putting it in his hands, however the pieces fall, it is ultimately for his glory and for our benefit, and we have to trust that. Is it easy? No. But over time, when you start to see God's reputation build in your life, whenever you trust him and things do work out in a way that glorifies him and benefits you, over time, you learn to trust him more and more and more. We have to exercise that trust. Put it in his hands. Put it in his hands. Okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? I told you, simple, easy stuff today. If you are in this room and maybe you are not a believer, Maybe you're not a believer. You got questions. You're digging. You're looking. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is at the corner of the stage, okay? If you have any questions for Greg, he will do his best to, to answer those, point you in the right direction. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything. If you are struggling with something in your life, letting something go or trusting God, don't do it alone. Let someone pray with you. You're not the only one that's went through those struggles. The last thing is all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table and the majority of these pillars in the middle of the room, there is communion. It represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to take that and go back to your seat, take it on your own. Everyone is welcome to do that as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Something to think about today while you're taking communion. How do we know we can trust God with everything? Because he gave everything for us. He loves us and he works for our benefit and his glory. Okay, let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, I don't know what situations are represented in this room. I don't know what stress or pressure is on the people in this room. Father, but you do. 
in whatever part of our lives maybe we struggle to, to, to lay down at your feet, whatever part of our lives we struggle to let go of, whether that be our jobs or our family or our, 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 our money or whatever it is, God, whatever stress or fear we have. Father, I pray that you start to speak to that today, God. Let us trust you more. Let us put our hope in you, God. We love you. We thank you. Bless everyone in this room until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.